God. Friends, that's not an easy scripture to read if you're reading it quietly to yourself, much less to read out loud in worship. So thank you, Judy, for reading that scripture for us. And uh, when you hear a story like that, it is uh, pretty evident the destructive, deadly power of the sin known as lust. And that's the sin we're going to be looking at Today, some of you have been with us for the past few weeks in this series looking at what are known as the seven deadly sins. And, you know, I met with a couple of people this week, and when I shared with them this was the topic that we were going to be talking about this Sunday, they both said, I was wondering when you were going to get to that topic. And I think they said that because for many of us, uh, maybe when we think about the seven deadly sins, lust is the sin that we think about first, and yet it may be the sin that we want to talk about the least. There's a lot of reasons for that, isn't there? I mean, there's, there's a lot of shame. There's a lot of embarrassment. There's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of brokenness. There's a lot of baggage. But when we're talking about this most intimate and vulnerable part of who we are and how we use our sexuality, And so I recognize that maybe this is not something that you really want um, to spend the next 30 minutes thinking about on this beautiful uh, Sunday morning. We've had this uplifting worship, and then we're going to dig into this topic together. And yet I would remind you of what I said a couple of months ago. We were going through 1 Thessalonians. We came to a passage that had to do with God's design for sexuality. And I said, you know, even if this makes you uncomfortable to hear a sermon about sex, How do you think I feel as the one who is having to preach the sermon on this topic? And let's just be honest. We can all be on the same page. This isn't necessarily comfortable, but it's necessary. It's so necessary that we be willing to to talk about lust and its effects in our hearts and in our lives. Because maybe of all of the seven deadly sins, lust can be the most seductive. Lust is most able to get almost an addictive hold over our hearts. There's a reason why when St. Augustine became a Christian, you know, this was back in the fourth century, he finally decided, I want to follow Jesus. Do you know what he prayed? He said, God, grant me chastity, but not yet. He said, of all the things that I'm willing to surrender and to give up in my relationship with Jesus, I don't know that the way that I use my sexuality outside of marriage, outside of your design, is something that I'm ready to give up. Lust can have a really seductive hold over our hearts. And certainly that's true even among followers of Jesus. Even in this room today, mature Christians, you may find yourself still in that place praying that prayer like Augustine, saying, I'm not sure that I'm ready to get rid of the power that lust has over my heart. Even this last week, um, there was yet another pastor, um, a leader of a worldwide movement of churches who was asked to resign by his board. Why? Because of lust, uh, because of sexual misconduct. 
We know those stories are, 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 are in churches. They're certainly present within um, Christian circles, and they're, they're certainly uh, present outside of the church. You remember the Me Too movement that, that began in, in Hollywood with the recognition that many Hollywood stars and producers were engaging in, in sexual harassment or, or, or sexual assault, and, and we hear about it on college campuses and politicians and, and business leaders. And, and, you know, often the way that, that it seems to happen is that here is somebody whose life is going really well. Maybe they're in a position of great power and influence. It seems as if life is really, you know, kind of going up and to the right for them. And all of a sudden, it's like their life is destroyed by sexual scandal. And that's the case with Amnon. I don't know how many of you know that Amnon was the crown prince That means he was the heir to his father David's throne. He was going to become the king of Israel. He had power, he had wealth, he had influence. His life certainly was on a very great trajectory for his future. And and maybe he thought he could manage. Maybe he thought he could control Um, the lust in his heart. He certainly probably didn't think it would be his downfall And yet it ended up being his absolute downfall. His life was destroyed through this sin. And you know, lest we look at Amnon and this this horrifying graphic scene of what Judy read, unless we, we look and we stand in judgment over him, I think maybe it's helpful for us to remember Amnon's father. You know, Amnon's father, David, was called the man after God's own heart. Have you heard that before? A king of God's own choosing. David wrote many of the Psalms, these worship, praise songs to God. He's the one who danced with abandon in his worship before God. He wrote Psalm 23. He wrote in Psalm 40, verse 8, he said, I delight to do your will, O God. And wouldn't you say that David was a genuine, committed follower of the God of Israel? And yet one day David looked and he saw this beautiful woman, Bathsheba, And he was attracted to her, and he brought her to him. In spite of the fact that she was married, he committed adultery with her. And then he tried, when she was pregnant, to have her husband killed to be able to cover up what he had done. And friends, I share that because if David, this man whose heart in many ways was so filled with this deep love and devotion to God, if David could end up committing those kinds of atrocities driven by lust, I don't think anybody in this room should conclude that we are immune to the seductive power of this one of the seven deadly sins. And maybe you're sitting here today and, and, and you, you realize that this is a battle for you. You feel like you're engaged in this struggle. Maybe you feel like Augustine later did. You know, Augustine got to a point in his life where he actually wanted to be free from lust. And yet what he found is that what had started with a number of choices had actually become a well-worn habit in his heart that was almost like an enslaving addiction. He couldn't break free from it, at least not easily so. Maybe some of you are in that place right now. Maybe others of you have been in that place before or you say, you know what, that's not my struggle or praise God, you've been liberated from that struggle. Wherever you are today, recognize the fact that we're not immune to the power that lust can begin to have over our hearts. And the question I think for all of us 
is when lust comes, just as it came for Amnon, just as it came for David, just as it has come for so many others, when lust comes into your life in a powerful way, will you be able to recognize it? Will you be able to unmask its allure? And will you be able, in the grace of Jesus Christ, uh, to uproot it? Or at least to be able to flee from it? And so what I want to do this morning... Uh, is I want to consider uh, four questions together. Here they are. Um, First, first question is, what is lust, or maybe what it isn't? Secondly, what's the difference between lust and love? How do you know when it's lust but not love? Uh, Thirdly, um, why is this particular sin so destructive and deadly? And then fourth and finally, how can we begin in God's grace to uproot this sin from our hearts and lives. So let's consider these questions together. So first, what is lust? Now, let me be very clear here. Lust is not the same thing as sexual desire. A lot of Christians, I think, get confused about this. Lust is not equivalent with sexual desire. God created sex. He created sexual desire. It is a good thing. You look in Genesis chapter 1, you see what is the first command that God gives to the first man and woman. He actually commands them to have sex together, to be fruitful, to multiply. We're told that they were naked and unashamed. Proverbs chapter 5 says that a husband and wife should be ravished with each other. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 says a husband and wife should seek to cultivate sexual intimacy with each other. So sex is not wrong, it is not bad when it is used within its God-designed boundaries and context. The other thing I want to point out is that it's not necessarily lust just to recognize that someone else is beautiful, to recognize that they are physically attractive. We're told in verse 1 of this story, now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. Tamar clearly was a beautiful woman. It's not necessarily lust for her half-brother Amnon simply to recognize that she is beautiful. So when does it become lust? Well, let's consider that together. And I want to consider it by asking this question. How do you know when it's lust, not love? And I frame it that way because did you notice twice in this story we're told that Amnon was in love with Tamar? He didn't think it was lust. He thought it was love. He thought he was in love with her. How do you know that it's lust, not love? Well, because she was his sister, right? That's a pretty obvious answer to be able to say off limits shouldn't go down that direction. But Amnon thought he was in love, didn't he? He thought he was in love with Tamar. So how do we know that it is lust, not love? Let me give you four ways to be able to discern that. Here's the first one. It is lust, not love when you are seeking sexual pleasure in the realm of fantasy. In the realm of fantasy, think about this in verse 2. We're told that Amnon was so obsessed with Tamar that it made him sick. What does that mean? It means he had gone beyond just saying, I think she's beautiful. And he had started thinking about her beauty, meditating on her beauty, contemplating her beauty. I think we could very fairly assume that Amnon perhaps had begun to fantasize about Tamar. 
that he'd begun to imagine himself with her in his mind, to, to, to lay with her in his mind. It had started in that realm of sexual fantasy. And you know, Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, for any of us who would say, well, what's so bad about that? It's just in the realm of fantasy. Nobody really gets hurt. They do, by the way. We'll talk about that in a moment. But you know, Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, he's very clear. Jesus says, you know, it's not just sin to actually sleep with somebody you're not married to or to do what, what, what Amnon does to Tamar. He, he rapes her, right? Jesus says that whoever looks at someone with lust in their heart has committed adultery with them already. When, when, when you're seeking sexual pleasure in the realm of fantasy, it's lust, not love. And by the way, this might be more common among men than women, but it's not unique to men. We know this pornography use among women or um, you know, ro- romance novels, honestly, sometimes that, that move into that realm of, of illicit fantasy. Can, can sort of feed that. And you know, what, what often starts in the realm of fantasy will end up making its way into reality. Not always, but often so, it'll move from fantasy to reality. And that's what happens here with Amnon, right? So Amnon first was contemplating, fantasizing about Tamar. And then, and then secondly, we see it's less not love when you lose your self-control, when you no longer have a sense of control over how you are using your, your sexual desire, it's moved from, from, from love to lust. And, and let me just make a comment here because I think maybe we, we need some compassion, um, some grace here in the way that we think about this one of the seven deadly sins. Often lust does not begin as a sin of malice but more so a sin of weakness. It often doesn't begin as a sin of malice, but a sin of weakness. Think about Amnon. Do you really think he was thinking to himself, I want to hurt and harm my sister Tamar? No, he thought he was in love with her. But eventually what happens is he feeds this sexual fantasy to the point where it overtakes him. Right? He loses this sense of control. It's almost as if he's being controlled by this desire. And and that's something I think for us to be really mindful, really aware of in in terms of how we think about um, the power of of, of awakening sexual desire within us. Because it gets to the point where, do you remember, she warns him, doesn't she? She says, do you see what this is going to do to me? She appeals to his compassion. She appeals to his self-interest. She says, you're going to be one of the fools of Israel if you do this. And yet he still does it, right? He's lost a sense of self-control. It's almost as if the sexual desire that he's awakened has overtaken him. And and I think that's important for um, us to to understand how that works. And and it's, it's a reason why I think our culture is so confused when it comes to our sexuality. It's a reason why I think our culture and what our culture says about sex just rings so hollow when you compare it with reality. Because what does our culture say about sex these days? Hypersexualized culture. Our culture says sex is just an appetite, just like eating. 
Right, so if you're hungry, you eat. If you're feeling sexy, you should have sex. It's not that big of a deal, right? It's just another appetite. Here's why that rings so hollow. Because when you awaken this desire, when you awaken this appetite, it, it, it gains this sort of power and mastery over you. You know, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, imagine if you were to go to a country and you were to see that people spent all this time looking at pictures and videos of food. And more than that, but they actually would watch as you would sort of peel back the wrapper of a cheeseburger slowly or as you would lift off the cover of a cake and people were sort of so enamored with that. He says, what would you conclude about those people? You would think they must be starving. And then if you found out, no, they're not starving. They eat plenty of food. In fact, the more that they eat, the more sort of infatuated they become with food in this way, you would think to yourself, gosh, that is a desire that is out of order. They've lost the sense of self-control in the way that they are relating to that desire. Friends, that's how sex operates in our hearts. It's far more of a powerful desire than just the hunger for food. It's not just an appetite. And we recognize that it has become lust, not love, when we're seeking that sexual pleasure in a way where we have lost control, where we feel like I have to give in to this particular desire. Here's a third way to know. You know it's lust, not love, when you're seeking sexual pleasure without a promise. And I know this might be challenging. This might not be something that everybody in this room would would necessarily agree with. But I think you see it taught all throughout the pages of Scripture. Did you notice in verse 13, when Amnon is inviting his sister to come to bed with him, she she refuses, right? She says, no, you must not do this. Did you notice what she says in verse 13, though? She says, please speak to the king, and he will not keep me from being married to you. Why does she say that? I'm going to go out on a limb here. I'm going to guess that of all the men that she could have chosen at this point to be her husband, I'm thinking Amnon probably was not near the top of that list. Right? In light of the way that he is trying to force himself upon her, and yet she recognizes in that day and age, in that culture, she says, it would be better for me to be married to you. Because at least then you would have to make some promises. At least you would have to make some commitments. At least you would have to to provide for me in a day and age where women were very dependent upon men. Praise God that our culture today has changed, where women are more uh, empowered than they were then. And yet, nevertheless, recognize that all throughout the Bible, there is this expectation that sex goes with marriage. It goes with promises. That, that, that that's the design of our sexuality. We talked about that a couple months ago. That's what sex does. It physically unites you with somebody else. That's what's happening in our physiology. And that's God's design for it. So when you look at somebody else and you say, yeah, I want to have sex with you, but I don't want to unite our lives legally. I don't want to unite our lives emotionally. I don't want to unite our lives in all of these other ways. I want to be independent. I want to be able to still make my own decisions. Essentially, what you're saying to the other person is you're saying, I want your body, but I don't want you. Or I want to give you my body, but I don't want to give you me. I don't want to give you my my vulnerabilities. I don't want to assume your cares and concerns and vulnerabilities. C.S. Lewis says that there's some sense in which when we want sex without the promise of marriage... He says it's actually a little bit like eating food without wanting to digest it. 
just want the taste, you just want the flavor, but you don't want it to really become a part of you. And in many ways, it's lust, not love, then, when there's no promise, when there's no marriage. And then finally, and this is probably the most uh, significant um, way that we discern, but also one of the, the most serious effects of lust is it's lust, not love, when you're seeking sexual pleasure without a person. What does that mean? I'm not just talking about pornography when you're using videos or images. There's no real person in the room. What I mean is that there is a way in which when you engage in lust, it is forming, it is shaping your heart to be a less loving person toward others. It's it's dehumanizing. It's, It's objectifying. Think about what happens with Amnon. Did anybody notice what it says in verse 15, he thought he was in love with her, didn't he? And yet the moment that he gets what he wants from her, the moment he gets the sexual gratification he's seeking from her and he uses her for that, what does it say? He hated her with a hatred that was greater than the love with which he had loved her. Right? There's this, this hatred that arises. Maybe there's a sense of shame as well. But there's a sense in which you recognize that that when you're pursuing sexual pleasure out of lust, not love, you're just interested in what you can get from the other person. You're not really interested in them. He was infatuated with her, but he didn't really know her. He didn't really have a relationship with her. He wasn't really emotionally united with her. Friends, that's how lust operates. That's how lust works. It's dehumanizing, it's objectifying, not just pornography, but, but sex outside of marriage as well. You know, there's a, there's a pastor named Peter Yonker. He, he puts it this way. He says, can you imagine if anybody would go to a strip club? If they were to, before each performer got up, to share some of her backstory, to talk about her life, to humanize her, he says, imagine if, if they were to renounce her and say, this is Mary Walensky. She has four brothers and sisters. Her parents divorced when she was five. Her mother is an alcoholic. She's been married twice, and her last husband was abusive. She has two kids and is struggling to get by. She likes dogs and would love to be a dental hygienist someday. That would empty the room. Lust wouldn't even work in that context, would it? In fact, the only way that lust can work is by dehumanizing, by objectifying, by robbing someone of their real humanity. And it's kind of ironic, isn't it? You know, we we said at the beginning of this series, we said every one of these seven deadly sins, they promise something good to us, don't they? Anger promises a sense of control, greed a sense of security, Vainglory, a sense of self-worth. Well, with lust, what's the promise? It's often a feeling of intimacy. You long for a sense of intimacy, but the reality is, is that lust actually is the antithesis to intimacy. It actually leaves you far more alienated. But not only from the person that you're looking to to gratify your desires, but actually from other relationships and other people as well. And so we begin to see some of the destructive deadly effects of this sin. And so why is lust so deadly? Why is it so destructive? I think we see our answers in the characters in this story, don't we? Let's let's take a look at those three characters together. So there's first Tamar, right? She's the victim 
of Amnon's lust. What happens to Tamar? She's robbed of her future. Did you notice that? Because for her, no longer a virgin. She's no longer going to be able to get married. She's no longer going to be able to have kids. That's why she actually says to Amnon, she says, actually, it's a worse thing for you to just throw me out the room. She says, that's a worse thing than what you've already done to me. It would be better if you were to marry me, better at least still, because then I might have children, then I might have a future. But what he's done in this act is he's not only violated her, but he's robbed her of her future. That's what it means when she tears her virgin robe. Not just she's lost her virginity, she's lost her hope for a future. And and of course, today our society looks a little different, praise God. But we know, we know that the effects of lust can still be very destructive on their victims, don't we? And of course, not only women who are, are raped, but women who are made to feel uncomfortable in their workplace um, because of sexual harassment or, or leering or, or sexually related jokes. I know a guy who's, who's in his late 20s who didn't want anything to do with the church for years because it turned out the priest in his, his church was abusing children. Um, we, we all can, can recognize you know, the, the pornography industry. I mean, so many of the people who, who are in you know, the, the videos that the pornography industry are making are, are not there freely. They're, they're trafficked. And we know about you know, human slavery and, and sex trafficking of, of women and children. Like devastating effects on the victims of lust. But also consider the effects on Amnon. Remember what we said earlier. He hated her with a hatred greater than the love with which he loved her. Do, do you see what it does to his heart? Fills his heart with a, with a jadedness, with a shame, with a hatred. And I think there's a reason why a lot of people are starting to recognize in our culture today that, that addiction to lust and pornography functions a lot like addiction to drugs. And, and how there's sort of this, this cumulative building effect. There's this increasing desire. There's more dominance and disruption of that pornography in somebody's life. And the pornography industry, they know that. They, they prey off of that. And, and often the, the, the forms become more and more perverse along the way. And, and there's this destruction that, that happens um, to the heart of one who finds him or herself under um, the spell of lust. Frederick Buchner puts it this way. I think this is really helpful. He says, who is to say who gets hurt and who doesn't get hurt and how? Maybe the injuries are internal. Maybe it will be years before the x-rays show up anything. Maybe the only person who gets hurt is you. People love to say nobody gets hurt with pornography. People do get hurt. The way your character is is shaped and formed. Look at Amnon, and then finally look at the family. We didn't read about this, but I don't know if anybody knows the story of, of 2 Samuel. Do you know what happens right after this story? So apparently David, King David, hears what has happened. And he's upset about it, but apparently he doesn't do anything about it. He, he doesn't bring justice. He doesn't really redress the, the problem in his family. And so as a result, his other son, Absalom, Tamar's full brother, he's furious. He takes it into his own hands. He ends up killing his brother Amnon in revenge for what he did to Tamar. And as a result of that, 
Um, We're told that Absalom flees, and now there's this rift between him and his father David. Eventually, this rift grows to where Absalom actually stages a coup, a conspiracy to take over the kingdom, which he does. David has to flee. Eventually, David gets his kingdom back, but his son Absalom dies, and you just see all the ripple effects of destruction that come from this act of lust in the family. And I'm sure in this room, there are those of us who have experiences and stories of marriages that have ended or families that have been very much um, hurt in many ways through the effects of lust. And of course, there is abundant grace and forgiveness in Jesus. And yet some of those consequences are still very real. And so where does this leave us? How can we begin to uproot the power of lust in our hearts when it is um, awakened within us, when we're tempted to act out of that desire. Let me suggest three things to us as we wrap up this morning. So first, first, this is just a practical advice, but try to avoid lust-triggering situations. And think about Amnon here, right? He, he puts himself in this situation where he is alone in this bedroom with Tamar. Right? He is in this, this lust-triggering situation. Try to avoid putting yourself in those situations. I talked to a guy in his 50s a couple of weeks ago who, who was very vulnerable. He shared with me, he said um, that for him, it's when he goes off on hunting trips that he knows that he is most susceptible to lust. And so he makes sure that he's in a room with another guy on that trip. He, he's got filters on his phone and on his computer so that if he goes or tries to go to certain sites, he's got other men uh, who know that. And that just helps him avoid those situations. Some of you maybe know in the workplace, if you're going to have a meeting alone with somebody of the opposite sex, you know, to try to do that in a more public setting or in a room where there's an open window or where somebody else might be around at the same time. I know of a young adult who, who shared with me a single person that, that he does not sleep with his phone in his room because he knows just how that might be a, a constant source of, of temptation to, to access that. So he leaves his phone in a different room when he goes to sleep. I know for, for me and my wife, Brandy, something that's helpful for us when we watch a TV show or we watch a movie and there's a graphic sex scene. We just fast forward through that. We, th- we don't need to consume that. We don't need to watch that. How do you avoid putting yourself in a lust-triggering situation? There's the first um, bit of advice. Secondly, secondly, you need better friends than Jonadab. You need better counselors than Jonadab. I mean, look, Amnon comes to this, this friend, his counselor, with his struggle. What does the guy do? He helps him hatch this whole plot and scheme so how he can hook up with his sister. You need friends that aren't going to lie for you, friends that aren't going to help facilitate that lust for you, rather friends that are going to hold you accountable, friends that are going to show you grace but are going to challenge you and are going to say, no, you don't want to pursue that. Life is not found in that way. And here's one of the big things about lust. Friends, lust loves secrecy. It loves isolation. There really isn't any hope to break free from lust power over your heart unless there are a couple of trusted people that you're willing to share that struggle with. And to be able to come to them and say, hey guys, I need your help. Would you help me um, to break free from this? Can I confess this to you? Can you help hold me accountable? I've got a couple of friends that I meet with every month, and we ask each other a series of questions about our relationship with God. One of the questions we ask is, are you struggling with sexual sin? Are you struggling with lust? And if we are, we'll confess that to each other. 
We need better friends than Jonadab, friends who aren't going to condemn us, but in God's grace, they're going to hold us accountable and encourage us even when we fall. But one more thing, and let me, let me just say, if you're going to hear one thing this morning, just hear this. If you want to uproot the power of lust in your heart, you have to learn to look for love in a better place. Let me, let me say this. Lust always looks best when your heart is most starved for love. Lust looks best when your heart is most starved for love. And so if you're married, that means pursuing an intimate, close relationship with your spouse. But more than that, more than that, we need to consider the love that God has for us, a fatherly love that so far exceeds the fatherly love that Amnon knew. You know, a lot, of, a lot of people point out the fact that David, King David, for all the great things he did in the Bible, that he may not have been the best dad, most present dad, most loving dad in the lives of his children. But friends, can I tell you, we have a father who loves us far better than King David loved his son, I mean, what what do we long for often in lust? We long for somebody who's going to embrace us, somebody who loves us, who treasures us just as we are, who says, I'm never going to leave you. Friends, that's what we have in the love of the Father for us, a Father who knows all of your faults. He knows all of your brokenness. He knows all of our struggle with sexual sin and the shame in our hearts and our lives, and yet this Father looks at us and he says, I love you. I delight in you. I long to be in relationship with you. He throws his arms around us. And just think of the costliness of that love, a father who would not spare his only son, but who gave him up for you, who gave him up for me. Friends, that's a love to be obsessed with. That's the kind of love that you want to meditate on to contemplate, to turn over and over in your mind, to think of how God loves you in that way. Because I'll tell you this, when you are basking in the reality of God's love for you, that lust is not gonna look as appealing. It's not gonna look as attractive. When you are dwelling in that reality of God's love for you, look for love in a better place. I pray that we would do that even as we come to the reminder of God's love for us as we come to the Lord's table this morning. Let's pray as we do. Lord Jesus, I know that this is a weighty topic, one that sometimes triggers thoughts of of shame, um, Lord, maybe of despair, And yet, Lord, I pray, Jesus, that we would hear those words that you spoke to the woman caught in adultery. You said to her, where are your accusers? Neither do I condemn you. I pray, Jesus, there are some of us in this room who need to hear those words from you as we come to this table this morning. Neither do I condemn you. For Jesus, you were condemned for us. Jesus, you took the judgment our sin deserves in our place on the cross. And yet you said to this woman, you said, go and sin no more. And there are those in this room, we need to hear those words as well. We need that invitation into the freedom that you promise us, the greater abundant life that lust cannot provide. 
Jesus, may we be reminded of the reality of your love for us in a way that would satisfy our hearts as we come to this table today. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Friends, on the night